0: Hey, doll. I'm your host, Paula. And I'm your host, Cynthia. And we are Dolls Dolls and Doom. So, Paula, did you ever see the movie Up Close and Personal with Robert Redford and Michelle Pfeiffer? I've heard of it, but no, I've never seen it. I think it came out in, like, 1996. So I was, what, 14 or so? Robert Redford plays, like, this Producer for a news station and Michelle Pfeiffer plays this up and coming news anchor woman. Okay. I remember watching that movie and thinking, maybe I want to do that. I want to grow up and be an anchor woman.
1: I can see you in broadcasting.
0: A little late now, but you know.
1: No, it's not. Look at what we're doing.
0: <laughs> there you go. I'm not a news anchor woman, but I do still think it's. A really interesting career choice. And that I have in common with the subject of today's case. Today I'm going to tell you about Jodi Sue Husentrout. So Jody Huesenstut was born on June fifth, nineteen sixty-eight. So another thing I have in common with her, we're both Gemini. Okay. <laughs> she was born in Long Prairie, Minnesota, and she was described as being a total spitfire. Uh, she'd been that way since birth. She was the baby of the family. In fact, her older sister Joanne was actually eighteen years older than her. So quite the age gap there, yeah. but. Joanne said that Jodi really, truly brought so much joy to their family. And throughout Jodi's childhood, she always had an interest in broadcast journalism. And even her best friend from kindergarten knew that that's what she wanted to do when she grew up. Jodi was a huge fan of Connie Chung, who was one of the most well known female broadcasters at the time.
1: Oh, yeah, I remember.
0: Oh, yeah, she was awesome. It was just no surprise to anyone who knew Jodi that this was the path she wanted to take. Jodi grew up and she went to St. Cloud University with the goal of being one of the top five women broadcasters in the country. Now the way to move yourself up in this area is to start small. You start as an intern and then you end up going on air in one of the smaller markets and you just keep moving from one market to a bigger audience, you know? until you eventually, hopefully, make it big. And that's what Jody was on track to do. She started as an intern in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Then she moved to Alexandria, Minnesota, where she began at KSCX in the early 1990s. And then from there, she moved to a station, KIMT, in Mason City, Iowa. And she'd been working there for about a year and a half by the time our story takes place. So Jodi was perfect for TV. She was beautiful. She was blonde. She was bubbly. But even more important than that, she was genuinely warm and likable. She was absolutely the kind of person that you would enjoy waking up to and watching on the local news as you had your first cup of coffee. So our story takes place in 1995 when Jodi was just 27 years old. She was single and she lived alone in an apartment in Mason City, Iowa, at a complex called the Keys apartment. And this was a pretty small complex. It was like three buildings with one central parking lot in the middle. And the buildings were like set up in a U shape. And these apartments were about a mile, which was at most a five minute drive from KIMT where Jody worked. At KIMT she helped produce and she also anchored their morning show So her days started super early. She was up at 3 a.m. every morning. Yikes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She was at the station by 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning at the absolute latest. Now, because this is such an early call time, oversleeping could be a real concern for anyone who carries this kind of schedule. Have you ever had one of those, like, early morning flights or something like that, and you're, like, so worried the night before you're going to sleep through your alarm?
1: Oh, yeah. The earliest I've ever had to be at work was 6.30, and that was Disney. Oh, okay.
0: Because it was for a
1: breakfast shift. Okay. (laughs) And I had to be in the building and clocked in at 6.30. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: So I've definitely had those gigs where you have to travel or something, and setting that alarm, I set several of them just for fear that I'm going to oversleep.
1: I only had one, but I would put my alarm clock across the room so I had to get out of bed to turn it off that's smart it took a while to learn that but (laughs) once I learned it it worked really well
0: all right go Paula well Jodi and her producer had a little agreement between the two of them that whenever one of them wasn't at work by 4 a.m. the other would call them that way they could keep each other out of trouble yeah that's a smart situation very smart So on the morning of June 27th, 1995, Amy Coons, the morning show producer noticed that Jodi wasn't at work. So she said that she gave Jodi a call at about 4 10 AM. Amy said that Jodi answered and she sounded groggy as if she had overslept. She sounded a little worried that she was late for work, but other than that, she seemed totally fine. Jodi said, Okay, I'm getting up. I'm going to be at the station in 10 minutes. Because remember, it's just like a five-minute drive. And it was not unusual, even on a normal day, for Jody to shower at home. But then get to the station with wet hair and no makeup. She didn't actually go on air until 6 a.m. So she would have plenty of time once she got to the station to get ready. The closer she did that at 6, the fresher she would look. Of course. So it's not unusual for... Jodi to bring with her to the station, her hairdryer, her makeup bag. I can imagine that she wore like a comfortable pair of shoes into work and maybe put her heels on right before she went on air. So she would have been carrying these items with her on most days.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: By 4.30 AM, Jody was still not at the station. So Amy called her again. And this time she got Jodi's answering machine. So she left a message saying, hey, I need you to hurry up and get here, but she assumed that Jody was probably already on her way. Remember, Jody's apartment. It's a mile from the station. It's a five-minute drive. She should have been there. Yeah. At 5 a.m., she still wasn't there, so Amy called her again, and this time she left an even more frantic message. She was really worried. She thought maybe Jody had fallen back to sleep. Well, Jody never showed up to work at all that morning. So at 6 a.m., Amy had no choice but to go on the air for her. As soon as the show ended, around 7 a.m., and Jody had still not arrived, Amy asked a co-worker to call the Mason City Police to do a welfare check on Jody. So Jodi lived on the second floor of the key apartments. And Mason City, Iowa, is a pretty small town. And these apartments were kind of on the edge of town, and there wasn't, like, a whole lot around it. This is a pretty rural area. There's a lot of farmland. And the key apartments backed up to the Winnebago River. So right behind her apartment building was, like, this cliff drop-off down into this gorgeous, pretty fast-flowing river. And then right up against the complex on one of its sides was a large campground. Now, because of this really beautiful river, the wooded areas surrounding, and this campground, there were walking trails going all around the complex. So when police arrived, and it was about 7.16 when they got there, they immediately saw Jody's brand new bright red Mazda Miata convertible in the parking lot. And the parking spot it was in was only about 12 feet from the door that led to the inside of Jody's building. But unfortunately, that's not the only thing they saw. On the ground around the car were Jody's keys, with one of them being bent. Her hair dryer was on the ground. Some paperwork was on the ground, an earring, her bright red heels that she was either carrying or wearing. I believe she was probably carrying them. Yeah. But they were on the ground, and then there were drag marks leading away from the car. It was very obvious something really bad had happened here.
1: Yeah, and from the bent key, it sounds like the key was halfway in. When someone grabbed
0: her. Right. That was my thought too. Except for I heard two different reports. The 2020 episode that I watched on this. They said the house key was bent.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Which to me, I, I couldn't really make sense of. But then in the Jensen and Holes Murder Squad podcast, they said it was the car key. Which that does make sense. Because right. of what you just said. So don't really know for sure. Okay. But it definitely makes more sense that it was the car key. Yeah. And that would say something about how strongly she would have been attacked.
1: Yeah, how rough it was.
0: Right. And for those of you who maybe can't envision this, cars haven't always had that little button thing that unlocks right. your car. So back in 1995, you actually had to put your key in the lock to unlock your car. Exactly. So inside Jody's apartment, investigators found a couple of things that could be really interesting clues, but at the same time, it could mean absolutely nothing. So inside the apartment were some beer cans in the sink and then two wine glasses. So when I first heard this, I thought, oh, okay, so she had a guest. She has two wine glasses out, but the lead investigator told 2020 in an interview that you can't really put a timeline on those wine glasses because what if she had a glass of wine one night and then... A second glass of wine like the next night and just didn't
1: clean up after herself right totally possible we don't know her pattern
0: right exactly so they couldn't really make a definitive decision on that now here's something that i find really interesting the toilet seat was up not the toilet lid but the toilet seat she lived alone i have some major questions here and even in this 2020 episode, the investigator said that that still bothers him a lot. The toilet seat being left up. But that's really all that was said about it in that episode. So I, like, tried to find out if Jody had more than one bathroom in her apartment. And I couldn't find out. Because if she did, then it's less important to me. Because she, you know, who knows how long it could have been up from...
1: Right. She's not going to use her own guest bathroom. I wouldn't. Right. But
0: if it's only one bathroom, and again, she was single and lived alone, so she wouldn't necessarily need to have a two-bathroom apartment, then that's strange. Yes. The toilet seat being left up? As women, is there ever a reason why you leave your toilet seat up ever?
1: For me, when I'm cleaning, and I did live alone, and I had a one-bedroom, so there was one toilet, and if I'm cleaning, yeah, the toilet seat is up.
0: Okay, because I always put mine, I lift it obviously to clean, but I always put it down afterwards, but you wouldn't necessarily do no, that? No,
1: I'm one of those people who scrub it and then let it sit for five, ten minutes, and then go back and, and clean the, not the seat, but the thing that okay. the seat rests on the bowl, right. okay. and then I put the seat down and clean the seat. Okay, so, so for, for some reason I let it, I don't want to say soak, but I let the bubbles like sink in a little bit.
0: Okay, and, so it wouldn't be unheard of right. for you to leave it up. Okay, Right. Um. another thought I had besides cleaning, the only other thought I had that would explain why she would have been alone but yet her toilet seat be lifted was if maybe she like got sick oh yeah like if she was throwing up do you lift the seat when you throw up I do yeah I I think I do most of the time too just you know (laughs) (laughs) less mess as long as you have
1: time (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) and I'm not in my little boy's bathroom because uh their bathroom's gross you don't want to lift that seat (laughs) yeah I would lift the seat when I was throwing up which if she were sick the night before that could explain why she overslept
1: oh yeah absolutely. you know
0: and maybe the beer cans in the sink and the wine glasses yeah those are the only reasonable explanations I can think of why a woman living alone would have a toilet seat up without having a male guest over right but then of course there is always the possibility that she had a male guest over and maybe that's why she overslept right because maybe she you know stayed up late the night before
1: yeah
0: Okay, so other than those few things, her apartment seemed to be in complete order. Even the bedspread was pulled up, which I thought was really interesting if you're running late. So in one source I read that it, the bed was made and then somewhere else I read that like the bedspread was pulled up. So I don't know like, to what extent
1: she made the bed Right.
0: I would find it very unusual for you to, like, fully make your bed, throw pillows and all if you've already overslept and are already late for work.
1: Yeah, that's the last thing I'm worrying about.
0: Right. But I guess there are probably some people who will not leave their house without having done so. I guess. So, again, not knowing her, we don't really know. All right. So, the big question, who may have wanted to take Jody? Obviously, in my mind, the first thing that pops into my head, given her, you know, being a public figure is like some crazy stalker. Oh yeah. I think anyone in the public eye you know has to be really careful. I've mentioned before my sister is a singer and she's not famous at all but she is popular. She does have a following and like even she had this one guy who would just like show up at all of her gigs. He would message her. He would wait for her to finish her sets and then like you know go up and talk to her. And if you didn't know the situation You would think they knew each other because right. of how he positioned himself and how he behaved. He behaved as if he was almost like with her.
1: That's really scary.
0: <laughs> she actually had to take some steps to get rid of him. But all that to say, like someone who's on TV, they could definitely attract the attention of somebody who's maybe a little off kilter.
1: Oh, yeah. And especially with TV shows, not necessarily movies, but TV shows, we see these people in our homes. So we, in a weird way, feel like we know them. Oh, yeah. We know them. They belong to us. Oh. They're in my home. I know them.
0: Absolutely, I feel that way about other podcasts, like
1: Elena (laughs)
0: and Ash from Morbid. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like they're my friends. I've (laughs) never even met. Stephanie Harlow. Oh, girl. She's my best friend. (laughs) We never even met,
1: so. Oh, yeah. Sean Hayes from Will and Grace, and he's got two podcasts that I listen to, both of them all the time, and anytime he says anything, I'm like, oh, me too, Sean, me too. (laughs) We would totally be besties.
0: (laughs) If they only knew... I'm sure they're listening right now. So, hey guys, hit us up. (laughs) All right, so, so with her being, you know, on everyone's local news station, you bring a, a great point that, you know, she definitely had that small town fame. People felt like they may have known her, and that isn't always a good thing. In fact, in October 1994, about eight months before Jody went missing, Jody actually filed a police report because she felt like she was being followed by a small white truck while she was out jogging one day. Yeesh. Right. Now, overall, Mason City was a, you know, pretty safe small town, but like all places, you know, everywhere has its rough spots. Now, Jodi did overall make good choices, and she was aware of the risks of, you know, being in the public eye. She did take self-defense classes, but uh, again, on this 2020 episode, a local radio DJ from Mason City was interviewed, and she said that she was an acquaintance of Jody's, because, you know, they would run into each other at the local events and stuff, and one day she saw Jody rollerblading right outside of the key apartments, and this DJ told Jodi that, You know, she should probably go rollerblade in a park somewhere, but not right in front of her home where people could see her and figure out where she lived. Yeah, that's good advice. It is good advice. But at the same time, back in 1995, everyone's information was in the phone book and Jody was listed. You could find her address, her phone number, everything in the phone book.
1: Yeah, that's true. That was a different time. Very.
0: So good advice in theory. Now, here is my problem with the stalker theory. Overall, I think it's a good theory, but it is a little strange that the day she went missing, Jodi was running late. She normally would have left her apartment before 4 AM, but on this day, due to oversleeping, she didn't leave until sometime between four fifteen and four twenty. So it was forty five minutes later than she would have normally left. And a stalker would have known her normal schedule. And I would think that a stalker would, like, be easily thrown by anything that felt off. And this reminded me of the Jennifer Kessie case that we covered. Remember the day she went missing? It was, like, her first day back from vacation.
1: Oh, that's right.
0: But there was a question as to maybe somebody had been watching her. But if so, it just seemed weird because she hadn't been there. And then all of a sudden, the first day she was back, she went missing. So if somebody's watching her... They wouldn't have even necessarily known she was back. It kind of reminds me of that in this situation where this wasn't the normal time she left the house. Right. So I would just imagine that that could have kind of thrown somebody off if they had a plan to take her that morning. So if it wasn't a stalker, then who else might have done this? Some people thought it could have been related to some of the stories that Jody had reported on. Mason City actually had a really high drug abuse problem it was actually breaking records. And the rumors were that Jody was working as an investigative journalist on her own time on some of these stories and trying to find out information so that she could do her story about like this big drug ring. But those close to her, including her boss at KIMT, said that there was absolutely nothing to those rumors Jodi had no interest in anything like that. She really just liked being a news anchor and she wasn't interested in like getting down and dirty and that kind of stuff. So on the morning that Jodi went missing, police decided to do a neighborhood canvas and they knocked on all of the neighbors' doors and a couple of Jodi's neighbors actually reported hearing some things. So one of her neighbors, a man, heard screaming coming from the parking lot at around four thirty a.m. and he said he looked around he didn't see anything so he just didn't bother to report it which is a little infuriating it is another witness thought they heard someone scream leave me alone and again nothing was reported
1: and that's even worse if you hear someone screaming leave me alone it's terrible the same as help
0: i would much rather be safe than sorry i think i told you about how one day when I was a teenager, I woke up having like a night terror and it was screaming. And my mom called 911 thinking a woman was being
1: attacked in our backyard. Right. But better to be safe than sorry. Absolutely. That's the whole purpose of a welfare check, just to stop by and make sure everybody's okay. So the
0: neighbor that lived right across the hall from Jody said that she heard some yelling, but what she heard actually happened the night before Jody went missing. So she said that at around 8 or 8.30 p.m., she heard heavy male footsteps coming up the stairs. And this man started knocking on Jody's door really hard, saying things like, Jody, I know you're in there, answer the door. And she said he kept trying to get in the door and kind of yelling and knocking hard for about three to four minutes before he finally gave up and left. Now, earlier that day, the day before Jody went missing, Jody participated in a Mason City Chamber golf outing after she finished anchoring the morning show. And then that evening, there was a dinner at the Mason City Country Club for all the teams. And her teammate said that she seemed very happy at the dinner. Everything seemed normal. And that right before 8 p.m., she said she had to leave. And so she did. And several witnesses say that they saw her leave by 8 o'clock. And remember, this knocking outside of her apartment was around 8 or 8.30, according to her neighbor. We know that Jody was home by 8.24 because she made a long-distance phone call to her friend Kelly. And Kelly wasn't home to take this call, but her husband was. So Jody chatted with him for a few minutes about the water skiing trip that she'd gone on just a couple of days earlier. She'd just gone on this ski trip with a group of friends, and one of those friends was a man named John VanSyce. And when Jody first moved into the key apartments, John lived there, but he moved out just about a month after she moved into the complex, but they stayed buddies. And in fact, it was his boat they used on the ski trip and they stayed at his son's house. John was a seed corn salesman and he was quite a few years older than Jody. He was 49 years old and she was 27. Jodi kept a journal and some of her last entries that she ever wrote were about the ski trip. And she talked about what a great time she had, what a nice man John was, how much fun they had when they all went out bar hopping and that she just had a really great time. And Jodi really liked this type of socialization. She really liked going out to the bars and, you know, hanging out with people.
1: Yeah, like happy hours. Yeah,
0: I, I used to love, like, the young attorney happy hours we yeah. used to go to. It was so fun. Yeah. Well, Jody could often be found at one of these local bars in Mason City, and she would often hang out with John at these bars. And another one of the people she would meet there was a man named Bill Pruin. So Jody, John, Bill, along with a bunch of other people – liked to go to this one sports bar called The Other Place. Now, Bill was a farmer, and in his early 40s, he was divorced with two daughters. But just a couple of months before Jody disappeared, Bill was found shot to death in his own home.
1: Holy cow, do we know anything about his death?
0: Yes and no. It is suspicious. So on April 6th, 1995, Bill was found dead on the floor of his home with a bullet wound to his chest. And it was actually believed that Bill was killed two days prior to him being found. His death was actually ruled a suicide, but Bill's daughters and those close to him said that it just didn't make any sense. He was found with a 44 Magnum gun, with a seven inch barrel, and the gun itself was 14 inches long overall. So with the size of the gun, some people questioned how he could have killed himself and ended up the way that he was found.
1: And personally, I've never heard of anyone dying by suicide and shooting themselves in the chest. It was very strange. So he
0: was found on the floor face down, bullet wound in the chest, bullet hole in the ceiling. So very strange. On top of just the weird way that he died, Bill had just bought a tractor that morning and driven it home that day. So why would you buy a tractor and drive it home if you plan on killing yourself?
1: Yeah, that makes no sense. No
0: sense. So Bill's family hired a PI. And in the meantime, because Jody and Bill were acquaintances and because of the close proximity and timelines of when their tragic events occurred, the rumor mill once again started going crazy. And this time, the unofficial word spread that Jody was trying to do some kind of undercover investigation to figure out what actually happened to Bill. And in doing so, she got put on the wrong person's radar. Now, neither the PI nor the Mason County Police ever found any evidence that the two incidents were at all related. Again, Jody's boss said that she never showed any interest in wanting to look into Bill's death further. And then on top of that, there was no evidence that Bill was even murdered. There was no evidence of anyone else being in the home. Nothing was taken. So police have still kept his death classified as a suicide. But the medical examiner changed their ruling to undetermined. Now, the P.I., really worked hard on this case. And he took into account Bill's lifestyle. And he says what he believes happened is that Bill came inside the house with wet shoes. And he may have been moving fast for some reason. And as a farmer, you would, you know, carry a gun. It's not unusual to, you know, have a gun on you. And so he came inside with these wet shoes. He slipped and fell all while holding a gun that was cocked and he accidentally shot himself.
1: Okay, I actually buy that over suicide.
0: I think I do too, just because of the way it all happened. I right. just think it makes more sense.
1: Yeah, I think I mean, if what are the chances, but I, believe, I definitely believe it over suicide. Uh, yeah,
0: I do. I think if a man or a woman, or if, if anybody is planning on killing themselves with a gun, they would probably not aim for the chest. That's right. just my
1: gut. And choose a smaller gun so it's physically easier.
0: Yeah, that's a big gun. I mean, I don't know anything about guns, but it's longer than a ruler.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's a
0: big gun. So Bill's daughters still have to deal with the fact that a lot of people link their dad's legacy to Jody's disappearance. And they've really asked that people stop doing that because, again, there's never been any evidence that either event has anything to do with, you know, the other and they feel it kind of muddies their dad's legacy to say that maybe there was more going on than just this accident and it's not fair to Jody either because it's putting attention on something that has nothing to do with her case so that's where they stand on it
1: understandable they're completely two different you know tragedies and two individual people
0: right i agree so let's go back to the morning of June 27th 1995 while the police are still at Jody's apartment processing the scene just a few hours after Jody was reported missing. There's something about that day that I haven't told you yet. Okay, listeners, I'm sorry to leave you on a cliffhanger, but we are gonna bring you the rest of Jody Who's truth story next week. Catch us here next Monday for the rest of her story.
1: <laughs> is that your stomach? <laughs> that is fantastic. Oh my it sounded like a cat. <laughs> I was like,
0: what is that?
1: My stomach makes a lot of noise, but I knew it wasn't me because I didn't feel it. Like, you can feel it when it's your stomach.
0: But that's the thing. I didn't feel it, but I was just like, I think that's coming
1: from me. Do you have a cat for breakfast? I mean, is that what happened? And it's meowing to get out? Sound like it. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for listening. Be sure to check out our website for pictures and links corresponding to each episode at dollsanddoom.com. Follow us on social media. Leave a comment.
0: And stay alive so you don't end up on the wrong side of the grass. Bye. Bye!